Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here are your hosts, John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hi, this is Dave. And this is John. And welcome to episode 97 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Ali Brosh, creator of the popular webcomic Hyperbole and a Half. The comic, which mostly deals with funny stories from the author's childhood, as well as touching on more serious subjects like her ongoing battle with depression, is intentionally drawn to look like something a child would create using Microsoft Paint, and has a devoted following with almost 400,000 likes on Facebook. A print version entitled Hyperbole and a Half, Unfortunate Situations, Flawed Coping Mechanisms, Mayhem, and Other Stuff That Happened, is out now. Then stick around after the interview as David Malky, creator of the webcomic Wondermark, joins us to discuss our favorite comic strips. All right, so let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Ali Brosh. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, David. All right, and so since you do this comic, one problem that we have doing an audio podcast is we can't show people uh, what the comic <laughs> looks like. And yep. um, I think many, many people who don't know your name or the name of the comic would recognize it. Uh, visually if they saw it because it's just you know the pictures appear everywhere and yeah it's become a meme (laughs) yeah and it occurred to me you must run into this problem just when you're talking to people right so do you have some way of describing your comic to people in words that they're like oh yeah i know that comic um oh gosh um there's a sort of crudely drawn character has a triangle ponytail thing on top of its head the yellow and then there's like a pink sort of tube dress and it's got really buggy eyes and squiggly arms and, uh, yeah, so that, that's the thing that I draw. And I also draw dogs. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was thinking maybe like a stick figure with like a fish face, maybe. Yeah, so it's a sort of tadpole-like, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so a stick figure, tadpole-like thing that's sort of vaguely humanoid, but also vaguely tadpole-y. All right, cool. So hopefully a lot of more people now know what we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And you mentioned that your comic uh, has inspired a lot of memes. Do you want to just say like what some of those memes are that people might recognize? So it's uh, the, all the things, like X all the Y meme that came from a, a post that I did. And uh, let's see, what other ones? Be a lot. Uh, there, there have been a, co- a couple pictures every now and then they'll circulate. At, but the, the big one is the X all the Y. Mm. You want to just explain a little bit more about what that is? So it, it came from a story where um, I'm talking about how I, I struggle with adulthood, and I, I periodically make conquests on adulthood, or I, I make an attempt at it, and it's always very, um, very involved, where I decide in one day I'm going to just change everything about myself and start you know, doing everything on time, paying bills on time, um, going to the grocery store and getting healthy food and learning how to cook well, and I'm going to clean everything, and... Just I basically try to change everything at once, and through the of doing that, I can't change anything because it all comes crashing down. You sort of have to make baby steps. Anyway, one of, one of the frames where I'm still motivated and trying to, to do all these things is a picture of me standing there, of my character, I suppose, standing there holding a broom and yelling, clean all the things. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and... Uh, oh, go ahead. Oh, and I was going to say that, um, yeah, that, that people have ton of, sort of done all sorts of variations on this. Some, when I, I read your uh, the Ask Me Anything you did on Reddit, and someone mentioned that this has even appeared in Warcraft. Do you know uh, where did it where did it appear no. in Warcraft? 
I did not know it had made an appearance in Warcraft. That's crazy. <laughs> um, all right. Well, how about the Allot? Why don't you tell us about that? The Allot is a monster I invented because of a grammatical mistake that people sometimes make, um, where they take the phrase a lot and make it one word. And so I, I like to imagine a monster when people say that. So they will say, like, uh, wow, they're charging a lot. And hmm. I imagine an Allot monster charging directly at someone. It just helps me cope with uh, grammar mistakes, I suppose. Yeah, no, that one drives me crazy, too. Have you considered doing a monster called the alright, where it's like alright yeah. is one word? <laughs> alright, so alright I only recently learned um, that <laughs> how that's supposed to go. Or uh, what's the other one? Um, there's one where you say oh, a while. That, that one's got some peculiar rules to it. Yeah, I mean, you could have a whole monster manual of, you know, yeah. monsters starting with A. <laughs> There's an idea. <laughs> Grammatical mistakes monsters. Uh, how about one of your memes showed up unauthorized on a bus ad? What's the story with that? Yeah, um, we haven't, I haven't had a chance to deal with that yet. I've been so busy doing book stuff that we've, you know, I, I've just finished dealing with, there was a, a billboard that uh, 7-Eleven Mexico ran. Um, that was using the same image, and we had to sort of be like, "Hey, that's not okay. Like, that's we we don't want to set a bad precedent, right? Where I just let anybody use this thing to promote whatever they want." <laughs> so we had to had to sort of be like, "Hey, you guys, this isn't okay," and got lawyers involved and everything. And that was a sort of long process that I am dreading repeating, but we'll get to that after all the book stuff has settled down. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, I think you, you mentioned that people have some, have you even used some of your memes to promote causes that you disagree with? I mean, what have been some, yeah. some of those? Uh, there, there was one that was like, save all the babies. Uh, it was used on a, on a pro-life site. I didn't, didn't really enjoy that one. And there was a, it's, it's been used as like, hateful stuff, like a, a against gay marriage, which I am totally in support of gay marriage, and so I cringe at my character being used in that way to, like, promote something that sort of oppressed people, I guess. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, in those cases, is there anything you can do, or you just have to sort of... There's not really anything. I mean, like, if, if I did that to every... If I tried to go out and find every instance where that happened, I would be doing nothing but doing that. It just takes so long to, you know, send a cease and desist letter, and if they don't cease and desist, then to, like, proceed with with legal action. <laughs> um, it, it's just such an involved thing that it would take all of my time, and I wouldn't be able to write or do anything other than just that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, we certainly want you spending time writing, and you mentioned yeah. that you're turning your, you've, or you've just turned your uh, blog into a, a print book. You want to t tell us about uh, that process? Yeah, so uh, after the blog became popular on the internet, I was contacted by my literary agent, Monica, and we started the process of turning it into a book. And so I took some of the stories from the blog and then added 11 new stories. So there are seven old stories and 11 new ones. And it's just the, the same stuff that's that's on the on my website. So it's uh, illustrated, sort of, sort of like a stand-up comedy in writing form is the, the best way I've found to describe the actual, like, what I do. 
Yeah, well, and so doing the news stories for the book, were, were those, was that a different process than doing the ones for the internet? Nope, exactly the same. I mean, I, I got more efficient toward the end of it because I was, uh, you know, I sort of had to learn how to do away with stuff like I, I would start drawing the pictures before I was done with writing all the text. And then if I decided to restructure the story or focus on a different aspect of it, I would have to scrap like all of these like days worth of pictures. I think there were there were some posts where I would get rid of maybe 300 pictures that I'd drawn oh by the end of it. And so I, I had to streamline it a little bit and learn how to be more efficient in writing and really hammering out the story before I start drawing and before I commit you know, ink to paper or digital ink to digital paper. Yeah. All right. And so uh, the book's dedication begins for Scott, what now, fucker? <laughs> uh, what's the story behind that? Uh, so Scott is a friend of mine, and he is very pranky. And uh, so that was my that was retaliation for a prank he pulled on me. What, what was the prank he pulled on you? He he stole my car and cleaned it, and then I uh, left a note in it that said like this vehicle has been confiscated by the Oregon Department of Health for like sanitation, and it was a uh, it was it was very funny and very nice. So I decided to sort of retaliate in the same. The same vein. My, my book's dedicated to him, but it's still sort of like, yeah, fucker, you got your... <laughs> this, this is my way of retaliating. Yeah, yeah. Well, so do you have a particularly messy car, I guess? Or, I mean, you used to before it got clean? I, it, this was after a, a road trip I had taken. And so I, I was living out of my car, pretty much. And it, it, got, it got quite messy. I and mean, there were, like, food wrappers on the, the passenger seat and... Uh, I mean, it, it wasn't disgusting, but it was definitely not a clean car. <laughs> and I don't wash it all that often because it just gets dirty again. No, I, I also have a, di- a very dirty car, so, you know, yeah. I'm not going to judge you. Oh, good. <laughs> but, uh, but I guess some people might judge you for swearing as much as you do, uh, especially yeah. this, in this comic that kind of looks like it's for children uh, to, at first glance. Right. Uh, what have been some of the most uh, sort of extreme reactions you've gotten to? Your, your constant swearing? I mean, I, I wouldn't call it constant. I'd maybe once or twice per post, if, if that. There's there's not even any any profanity at all. Um, so I, I, I use it quite judiciously, but I think that it's, you know, some swear, swear words are sort of like a fine spice. You can't do them too much, but like they, they punch up the flavor of the, the writing a little bit. You know, if you, need, if you need that for humor, sometimes you need to just have that word in there for the tempo of it. Like I, th- I think "motherfucker" is one of the funniest words in the English language. Just it's uh, it's beautiful to me. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I've, I've had people write very angry emails, being like, you know, you don't need to do this, you don't need to say this. But like, what I say to them is like, I'm I, I write this based on my sense of humor, so the things that make me laugh, um, because that's the only barometer I can really use. And I'm not going to start pandering and being like, well, I can't swear because it's offensive. I mean, it's it's just words. And to me, they're very funny words. I'm not actually doing anything bad. I'm not being violent or being obscene. I'm just using a word that is somehow classified as a naughty word. Mm-hmm. Well, that's funny that you compare swearing to, to spicing up food, because in the book you mentioned that you used to be confused about salt and pepper and how they don't cancel each yep. other out. <laughs> So I was just wondering, yep. did you ever go through a, a phase where you thought that, like, fuck, canceled out shit or something? And then you're like, wait, no, it actually just makes it even worse. <laughs> uh, may- maybe. I haven't analyzed that yet. I'll have to go back and look at sort of my writing progression and see if I've uh, 
if I've used Fox to cancel out shits. <laughs> Uh, all right, cool. So uh, I mentioned that I read this uh, AMA, this Ask Me Anything You Did on Reddit. Yeah. And it seems like you spend a lot of time on Reddit. Is that is that accurate? Do you spend a lot of time on Reddit? Yeah, I, I do. Um, Reddit is my preferred procrastination device. Uh, I, I spend a lot of time there. I don't spend a lot of time logged into my, my main account anymore, um, just because I'll, I'll try to make a comment. And like, I, I don't like being visible in me all the time. Because people have me tagged on there. There's a feature where you can... Uh, where you can tag people so you know who they are later, and it sort of flags your attention and be like, "Oh, this is this person." And uh, sometimes I like just being totally anonymous. So I have a, I have an alternate account that I use, and uh, it's it's sort of fun. I get to test out humor and try to see how many upvotes I can get uh, with with a funny comment or something, and that that helps me just with my my writing process to see that and see what works and what doesn't. So it's a, it's actually a great tool for um for comedy. <laughs> Yeah, so what's the name of your alternate account? I can't tell you. Ah, almost got you there. All right. Um, all right, well, I mean, one place you popped up on Reddit was in the No Sleep subreddit, where you posted yeah. this, this really creepy short story called Cologne. Could you just, mm-hmm. what, what, what was the story behind that? I actually read a lot of horror, and I think that there's there's some great parallels between horror and comedy. They're, they both rely a lot on you know, suspense and building tension and then releasing it. And so this was just sort of an exercise that I wanted to do. Um, I wanted to actually try to write horror and see see how much suspense I could build. Uh, it, it was just a, it was a good writing exercise for me. And uh, so I, I wrote this creepy story that was basically based on my worst fears. And the suspense came from all, all of my sort of like safety checks that I used to combat these fears. I tried to undermine those. So like, you know, if I, I lock my house, then the, you know, the killer gets in through an unlocked door or through, you know, a door that didn't quite latch right. And it's all, it's basically about somebody breaking through all the things that make me think I'm safe. And it's not, it's not me, that the narrator isn't me necessarily, but it's uh, the character, this character is living out my greatest fears. Yeah, and you, but you really do do those safety checks, like checking to make sure there's not a serial killer. You, you, you say in the book <laughs> yeah. you actually like, pull over to the side of the road every once in a while just to make sure there's not a serial killer hiding in the backseat of your car. <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, I, I actually used to be a lot more anxious and paranoid uh, before I became depressed. But my, my depression has cured me of a lot of my anxiety uh, by making me not care as much. <laughs> uh-huh. so, uh, so I'm not quite that way anymore. I'm, I'm much less fearful now. Uh-huh. Um, well, you also say in the book that you, uh, uh, that you watched the Texas Chainsaw Massacre while your parents thought you were asleep and you were hiding behind yeah. the couch watching it. I'm not actually sure if it was the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I actually don't know the name of the movie I watched. I, I used Texas Chainsaw Massacre because that was a, a well-recognized movie. Um, so with that one, I don't actually remember the name of the movie it was, but it was terrifying. <laughs> I mean, do you, did you watch a lot of horror movies? Are you a horror movie fan? Um, I, I do now. I, I went through a phase where I was really scared of them, and I wouldn't watch them. But uh, I, I really do enjoy horror movies, and I enjoy reading horror as well. I uh, I read a lot of Stephen King in, in like my formative years. When I was like a, like eleven and twelve, I was reading like Pet Cemetery. Uh huh. Like what? So what authors? What horror authors would you have been reading lately? Oh, uh, lately, I, I actually haven't read a lot lately. I don't read other authors while I'm writing because I find that when I read someone else's writing while I'm trying to write, 
um, I sort of start writing in their voice. And that's, that's harmful because later it doesn't sound like me, it sounds like them. And so I've had to sort of go on a, on a reading hiatus, hiatus, how do you say, there are all these words that I don't actually know how to pronounce because I've just read them. Like, I, I know them, but I'll try to actually pronounce them in real life. I spend a lot more time reading things than I do talking. So is it hiatus? Hiatus, yeah. All right. <laughs> so it's like a, a hiatus from, uh, from reading while I was writing, and then I've been so busy since I finished the book that I haven't had a chance to sit down and, like, really, really read. I've started to reread uh, Douglas Adams' whole, like, Hitchhiker's Guide series. But that's not horror. That's comedy. Yeah, well, since since we're the Geeks Guide to the Galaxy podcast, you know, we're obviously we're well acquainted with Douglas Adams. Oh, I didn't I didn't make that connection. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, no, um uh you know, I my, my parents owned the uh the original BBC radio drama of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and we would we would listen to that wow, on car trips. That's so I've listened to it like fifty times probably, something like that. Very cool. Um and actually, um, speaking of that, uh, it was interesting. We actually talked about Douglas Adams back in episode 42, right, of our podcast. Uh-huh. Oh, perfect. <laughs> and, uh, and my co-host, who, who couldn't be joining us tonight, and his wife were both on. And they both said that, as teenagers, that uh, they both had went through very difficult times in their life, and that uh, reading Douglas Adams helps them, really helped them get through that. And I was wondering if you felt that, that way at all. I mean, it, it wasn't during a difficult time in my life, but I was reading it. Um, I feel, I think I, I read, I started reading Douglas Adams maybe in seventh grade. And I, I do remember laughing so hard that I couldn't breathe and being legitimately concerned that I was going to die. <laughs> I, was, uh, I was sitting in my, the back of my mom's car. We were picking my sister up from some after-school activity that she was doing. And my mom left to go inside to pick up my sister. And I was sitting in the back of the car reading Hitchhiker's Guide. And... I came to, I think it was the part with the, the whales falling out of the sky. And it, it, it was, it was somewhere around that part. And I was laughing so hard that I couldn't breathe and I couldn't like, I kept thinking about it and it kept making me laugh more that I couldn't stop laughing. And I remember like, oh my God, I hope my mom comes back because like, this is really turning into an emergency situation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's like a horror story. you like, someone dies from. Yeah. <laughs> See, horror and comedy, lots of parallels. Yeah. Have you written any other prose fiction uh, besides that clone story? Um, you know, I used to write all the time when I, was a, when I was a kid. I wrote these, like, gigantic monstrosities about these heroic men, like, fighting things. And my main character was named Jatham, like a very uh, manly warrior name. And he would just wander around and find different things to fight and then fight them and continue wandering around until he found more things to fight. And that was pretty much the storyline for every single thing that I wrote in this series of like quote unquote books. Um that was my that was my first assault on literature. I uh I, I toy around with it. You know, I write things every now and then. There's nothing that I've finished. I uh I'm bad at finishing things. I was very happy to actually finish my book. <laughs> Um, so th- that Jatham thing you mentioned, that was sort of an epic fantasy story, or? Yeah, so sort of like that. I was, um, I read a lot of Tolkien growing up, and uh, so I was very into, like, the Aragorn-type characters. Those were my idols. I very much wanted to be a, a fearsome warrior. <laughs> so you would describe yourself just overall as a fantasy and science fiction fan? Yeah, I mean, I, I enjoy... Um, I, I probably haven't read a, a whole lot recently, I guess. But yeah, I, I enjoy fantasy. I uh, I play magic, uh, magic cards. 
Mm-hmm. So I, uh, I, I do enjoy fantasy quite a lot, and I, I would like to take a stab at like actually legitimately writing it someday, maybe. But uh, we'll see. We'll see if that comes to fruition. <laughs> Yeah, well, just just reading some of your stuff. I mean, it sounds like you're really pretty hardcore into Magic: The Gathering. I mean, I just played it a yeah. little bit. I just played it a little <laughs> bit when it first came out, and I didn't even understand half the stuff you were yeah. talking about. It was like so arcane. <laughs> yeah, um, I. That's sort of my my relaxing thing that I do is I get online and, and play Magic, and I'll, I'll play. I'll get online and join a draft queue and play for like nine hours in a row. And just play and play, and you know, I, I have obviously far-fetched dreams of like, oh, I want to be a professional magic player, because like, that's clearly what you do when you try to take on any new conquest to try to like be the best at it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, you actually watch, you go on YouTube, right, and watch people play magic and, and stuff. Yeah, so there's um, I, I watch like Twitch streams, there's Twitch TV, um, so I watch players play there, and then there's uh, different sites. So there's like Star City Games and uh, Channel Fireball, and I watch videos that they put out. Um, and yeah, and then some YouTube. Like there's old tournament uh, videos on YouTube that I'll sometimes watch, or like um, archived Channel Fireball videos. I watch a lot of Magic. <laughs> uh-huh. I mean, could you say some Magic stuff that would be would sound like gibberish to me, but would Ooh, God, totally prove crazy. your cred to the hardcore Magic crowd? <laughs> I don't know. See, coming up with it on the spot is sort of difficult. Um, so I've been trying to make um, a bug deck work. Bug is a, a term for um, blue, uh, blue, black, green deck. And uh, so the basically you use disruption cards like Thoughtseize to disrupt your opponent's game plan and feed your graveyard, which you can then use as a source of card advantage with cards like Snapcaster Mage and Tomagoyce. Uh, <laughs> and then you, it's, it's sort of scary because you got bobs in there and they're always trying to like get your life total. But then you got Death Rate Shamans to, to gain it back. And uh, it's, it's good against uh, combo decks because you can disrupt their game plan, but it's also good against, say, like more fair decks. Because you have enough removal and enough, you know, hand disruption and counter spells to to deal with those threats as well. Does that sound? Does that sound jargony? Yeah, that was perfect. I have no idea what you're talking about. That's exactly. Really? What we're <laughs> I don't know. It, it wasn't very eloquent. When I said it was, it was jargony, but not very eloquent. <laughs> I was basically that. That's uh, that would be like to, to somebody who plays magic. That would seem very rudimentary. I feel like. Like, well, yeah, that's how bug works, of course. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. So, I mean, you mentioned earlier that uh, that you moved sort of from anxiety when you were younger to depression more in recent years. Yeah. And you have this really, really amazingly good uh, comic you did about, or uh, two comics, I guess, that you did about depression. And I've seen a lot of people, including like clinical psychologists, say that this comic presents the best explanation of clinical depression of anything they've ever seen. And so that's it's just. Incredible. Yeah, so I was just wondering, I mean, do you think that we should just throw out all psychology textbooks and just replace them with your comics <laughs> instead? <laughs> I mean, I, no, I think that those are, those are useful. Um, I, I've, I've certainly learned stuff from psychology textbooks that help me understand myself well enough to explain it. Um, but I, yeah, I think that um, a lot of 
people who write psychology textbooks maybe haven't been depressed. Um, or if they have, maybe they didn't like approach it in quite the same way I did, where I sort of tried to fix everything from the ground up and uh, had this really intensive tour of my own brain. <laughs> that, uh, yeah, I was trying to figure it out. It's like, well, nothing that I was saying was helping me. So it's like, well, I have to go in here and try to figure out how to explain it better so that I can get better help. And sort of the result of that. <laughs> Yeah, and and I mean, I mean, just reading the uh, res- a lot of people responded very powerfully to that, and that Reddit asked me anything that I read. Um, do any of those the responses that you've gotten to those comics uh, stick out in your mind? I mean, there, there have been a few, and they're mostly mostly through like personal messages and emails, where um, I'll talk to people. Like I, I've talked to people who are suicidal. Um, you know, at, at the time they they wrote me the message. And uh, so we've, you know, talked about it and I've spent, you know, late nights staying up with people who are suicidal, just talking and trying trying to figure out how how to keep them from killing themselves without, because it's tough because you don't want to delegitimize the feelings, right? Like if someone wants to kill themselves, you can't be like, well, just don't, because that sort of takes away any of the legitimacy of what they're going through and makes it feel like, well, you don't understand. And that's, that's a, it's a tough thing because they have, there's all this, these questions of like, well, why? Like, you don't know me. Why should I keep going? And there's, there's no real answer to that other than that, that doesn't sound super like hallmarky and cheesy or like just bullshit, basically. <laughs> um, so I've, you know, st- stayed up very, very late just talking it out and figuring it, figuring things out with people. And um, th- those are the ones that stick out the most to me, probably the, the more real discussions I've had with people over email or personal message. Uh, well, so these are people, they just contact you through your website or something? Um, yeah, so it, it happens on Reddit sometimes. So I'll get, I'll get messages on Reddit. And then a, a couple of people have contacted me. I have a, an email account on, um, linked to on my, on my blog, but I get... I get a lot of mail, so I can't read everything, but sometimes I'll catch these ones that are like, people being like, help, I don't know what to do. And so I, I try my best to actually help. Wow. And I mean, do uh, do other emails that you've gotten, like different sorts of emails also stick out for you, just among all that, that the um, fan mail that you get? I mean, I've gotten some really funny emails. I'm trying to think of any particular ones that really, really stand out. Um, I, I got a, when I was, when I was really depressed, actually, a group of my readers got together and, and made me a quilt and sent it to me in, in like real mail. That, that was a, that really stuck out. Were these all people who lived in the same area or did they like send no, parts they, of the quilt all to over each people, other? They, they knitted or crocheted different squares and then, um, sent them from all over. There's one from Iceland, even in there. <laughs> It was, it was incredible. It was a great project. Wow. And and so what does it look like, the quilt? It, it's beautiful. There's different, it's very colorful. And so there, and there are all these different um, knitted and crocheted squares that have been sewn together. Um, and so there's one of like the lot, and there's like a heart on it. And uh, there's a really cool one where it looks like um, there's text on it, but you can only see it when looking at it from like a side angle because like of the way the, the yarn is, raised up like the specific knitting pattern they used it's it's really cool i uh, i have it on my bed 
Not not right now because I'm traveling, but at home it's on, <laughs> on my bed. That'd be funny if you just took the quilt with you everywhere you went. Yeah, I'd be afraid I would lose it. <laughs> I, I tend to leave things behind in the hotel room, so I don't take anything that like really, really matters. <laughs> um, and then you, you've also talked about, in addition to the depression, that you were treated also recently for endometriosis. And yeah. I think a lot of people just don't even know what that is. Do you want to just talk about that? It's, it's sort of crappy. To, it's like that. There's not a lot of research. So um, even... Like, scientists and doctors don't really entirely understand endometriosis and, like, the pathology of it, so why it happens. Um, but basically, um, we, when we didn't know it was endometriosis until the surgeon actually opened me up and took everything out. They thought it was cancer prior to that. Uh, so it's sort of scary. <laughs> but, uh, but after they opened me up, they found that everything in my, um, my pelvic region, my abdominal cavity was scarred together. So what happens is uh, I I get cysts on my ovaries. They're basically like giant blood balloons, and then they they burst, and it's this horrible appendicitis-like pain, where um, it's you know violent immune reaction. There's fluid in your abdominal cavity that's not supposed to be there. So there's a lot of inflammation and an incredible amounts of pain. <laughs> and because of all that inflammation, um, scar tissue starts to form. And so my, my organs were all scarred together and fused into a, like, tangled mass. And the surgeon had to, had to undo that and then take out my, my uterus and ovaries. And, well, I, I have one ovary. I'm hoping that it'll, uh, it'll be scared into submission because all of its friends were brutally murdered in front of it. <laughs> well, and, and, I mean, you said that you went to a number of doctors who didn't take your complaints seriously, yeah, right? Um, the t- tends to, I, I don't know, because it's, like, women's health, it's sort of like, oh, it's, I got a lot of hand-waving and just like, oh, it's just cramps, sweetheart. We all go through that. And it made me sort of feel like maybe I'm just being a big baby about it. But there were times where I was throwing up and passing out because it hurt so bad and I couldn't deal with with this happening every month. And this would be three days of agony and not being able to get up. I couldn't, if I stood up for any length of time, my legs would give out, they'd start shaking and I wouldn't be able to stand anymore because it hurt so bad. Um, so, that, so that's not normal. And I would try to explain that to doctors. And they should be like, well, we don't know what's going on. Like, maybe there's, I, I've been evaluated for appendicitis. I've gotten probably four CT scans because doctors thought I had appendicitis. <laughs> and so they didn't, didn't realize that endometriosis is a thing that can be, like, crippling. <laughs> well, and so, I mean, but... I guess, is there anything that you just want people to know, people who might be in the situation that you were in when you didn't know what, what was wrong with you? Yeah, um, per- persist. Don't let doctors treat you like you're faking it. You know, I, had, I, I went into the emergency room once because I was in such horrible pain. I, I didn't know what was wrong with me. I thought that there was something seriously wrong inside of me. And um, they thought that I was just looking for drugs. And so they, they didn't take it seriously. They did an exam and just sent me home with like, you know, with some drugs, but they, they thought that's what I was after. And so don't be, be, be more assertive about your pain and, and describe it and don't, don't stop. If, if you are experiencing this particular brand of, of agony, um, you really sort of need to be an advocate for yourself so that you get the, the care you need and, and get a doctor who really takes you seriously. Because there, there were some things that happened to me where I, I could have died. So if, if you have something that seems to be related to your lady parts 
and it seems really dangerous and scary and painful, uh, get it diagnosed. <laughs> don't don't settle and feel like you're like maybe you are being a big baby because you probably aren't. Yeah. Wow. Um. All right, so uh, in one of the stories in the book, you describe how you have these conflicting aspects of your personality. So, for example, you would simultaneously see yourself as a skeptic, but also imagine that you probably have a very pretty aura. <laughs> yeah. And uh, actually, just sort of skepticism is just something I'm interested in. And I was just kind of wondering how serious, <laughs> like, uh, was that completely a joke? Or do you see yourself as a skeptic at all? Or Yeah, no, I'm, I'm definitely a skeptic. Um, but, you know, there's still a part of me that's like, well, what? You know, there's just this, like, really selfish, greedy part that isn't rational at all that like if somebody ta starts talking about auras that part pipes up and is like oh my god i better have like the prettiest aura <laughs> mm. uh but just in general when it comes to ghosts and psychics no and i'm not, not a believer in and... i'm a i'm an atheist i am totally skeptical of those things i rely more on like science and logic than than more metaphysical stuff I mean, it's, it's it's still like fun to talk about, but I don't I don't believe in any of it. Yeah, I mean, is that how you grew up, or did you? No, my, my mom my mom is actually <laughs> my my mom was very like spiritual and and metaphysical, and she's always trying to tell me about like how I can straighten out my energy and um like the she she's into the whole like the secret philosophy of positive thinking, like you create things with your thoughts, <laughs> and so it's funny sometimes because she thinks that I'm very negative where <laughs> I'm like, no mom, like things are just shitty. That's the way they are. I'm not panicking about it. I don't have to be like any more negative than necessary, but it doesn't hurt to look at like things being shitty. Like you, you don't have to hide behind this panicked shield of positivity all the time. Yeah. Well, I mean, that was something I thought was really interesting when we were talking about Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, because that's sort of the whole the whole message behind Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy in a way is not that like, is like you don't have to pretend that the universe makes sense or is a nicer exactly, place than it exactly. is. But it's just kind of, when you accept it for what it is, it's still kind of just sort of funny, <laughs> you know? Exactly, yeah. It, it's funny and it doesn't have to be scary. Like there's so many things that seem scary and people's automatic inclination is like, well, I don't want to be negative about it, so I'm just going to be positive. But it's like, if you're being attacked by a bear, it doesn't do you any good to pretend that you aren't being attacked by a bear. <laughs> Because you, you're you much more prepared if you can acknowledge this is happening, you know, the bear is attacking me, what do I do? Than to, like, sit there and pretend, oh, well, maybe maybe the bear is being friendly, maybe the bear isn't a bear, maybe it's a, a happy unicorn rainbow thing. <laughs> All right, cool. And then, um, I don't know, just what are you working on now? Do you have another, any other uh, blog posts in the works or another book or anything? I've been working on a whole collection of, of blog posts. I um, so I'm, I'm working on a, on a whole group of them now, with the intention of publishing another book and also using some of them for uh, for blog posts. Mm -hmm. Is there anything you can say about the uh, the post you're working on? Um, so there there's a couple about the dogs, and um, so there's there's one about my my crazy aunt Lori. And one about um, a, a friend of mine and I, uh, we invented this game called Doggy Detectives when we were kids. We were detectives who were, like, just inexplicably dogs. And we would try to solve different, like, different crimes. But, you know, how many crimes are there around an elementary school? So we had to, <laughs> we had to make up our own mayhem to solve. 
So they sort of, we, we weren't the forces of good that we thought we were going to be. Yeah, we ended up having to, to make mischief to then solve and be heroes. <laughs> uh, and then on uh, Reddit, uh, your husband mentioned you're working on Depression Part 3. Yeah, so I'm working on that one. There's a, There's been a lot of, you know, there's so many parts to depression, right? There's so many things you can say about it because it's just this, this big thing that becomes like your entire life. And so in Part 3... I'm, I'm describing sort of the aftermath and what it's like living because you, you never, like, it's not, it's not cured. I'm still depressed. It's, it comes and goes, it becomes more depressed and less depressed, but like, I'm, I, I still consider myself depressed. And so what, what that's like, what it's like living with it. And, um, it's a, there, there's a little bit of, a little bit of horror in there in, in a comedic tone, of course, but, um, I, I enjoy, I've enjoyed it so far writing, writing about it and just how, uh, you know, what, what's like trying to motivate yourself after you've found out that you can like live in total squalor and, and you don't die. Like there's nothing bad that actually happens to you. So there's some of that, some of that fear that I used to motivate myself isn't there anymore. And that, that's a little bit, that's something that I've been struggling with. Um, yeah, just, just stuff like that about the, the more day to day aspects of depression and what's like actually living with it. Mm-hmm. All right, cool. And then, you know, the format of the show is that we do an interview and then we have a panel discussion afterward and the panel discussion okay. is going to be on comic strips. So I was just wondering, after people read your blog and your book, what other comic strips or uh, web comics should they go check out? Ooh, so, so there's this one that I've always wanted to plug because I think it's brilliant. Um, it's called Romantically Apocalyptic. It's a, it's a web comic and it's just the... Um, the the writer says a lot with a very with very little, and it's the humor is fantastic and subtle, and the art is beautiful, and I can't say enough good things about it. Mm-hmm. And it's about relationship. Uh, no, no, it's about it's a post apocalyptic comic. It's a, it's about this guy called the the captain, and he is just this this post apocalyptic guy. You can't. What one brilliant thing about it is because the characters are all wearing gas masks. You can't see any actual facial expressions, so the the creator has to get really, really creative with like how he exhibits emotion in his characters. Yeah, and also I guess if you can't draw, that's a good thing to do because then you don't have to draw all those faces. You can just you know get really good at drawing <laughs> gas masks. He, he can clear. He can clearly draw. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's it's great and and very funny. All right, great. So uh, unfortunately, we're just about out of time here. So I think we're going to have to wrap things up there. I hope that was somewhat uh, verbally fluent. I feel like I'm uh, at falling apart at this point in like the interview schedule, where I just everything sort of comes out rapidly and partially deformed. Yeah, well, I, I think uh, yeah, our listeners should understand that you've done about thirty interviews today or something. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, no, no, I, no, it was it was great. Uh, I, I really enjoyed talking to you, and uh, good luck on your next uh, thirty in- interviews that you have to do. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, David. Yep. All right. Take, take care. Bye. And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Ali Brosh for joining us on the show. And as we mentioned, for our panel today, we'll be discussing our favorite comic strips. And we're joined by a special guest geek, David Malky, creator of the webcomic Wondermark. He also co-edited the best-selling fiction anthology Machine of Death, along with Ryan North, our guest, back in episode 93 and is also the co-creator of the card game Machine of Death, the game of creative assassination. So, David, welcome to the show. Hello there. It's my pleasure to be here. And I'm really excited to talk about comic strips, because 
As I've mentioned, I was never huge into comic books and graphic novels, just a little bit, but I was definitely always huge into comic strips. And I collected all of them and I memorized them. <laughs> and there was a period of my life from age, about age eight to 12 or so when about 85% of my social interaction was saying to people, hey, do you remember the Calvin and Hobbes where? And then I would recite the entire thing. <laughs> I, I can only imagine it drove my parents insane. I don't know how they, how they endured it. But uh, I don't know. Was it, was it the same for you? I guess, uh, uh, David, or was that now that you're a webcomic artist now, did you get started the same way with this sort of passion for comic strips? I did, actually. And I didn't realize it until years later that I had that it wasn't something that was just a part of everybody's childhood, but it was definitely a part of mine. I I read the the comic section in the newspaper, you know, as often as I could, and I had the little paperback collections of a bunch of strips. Some of them were my own, some of them were hand-me-downs from my older siblings. And I think that format, that vernacular, got impressed on my mind from a really young age. Mm -hmm. And you would also like tell people them, <laughs> uh, recite the, recite <laughs> um, them to people. I would I would tell the jokes of them as if they were my own. Okay. <laughs> Uh, sometimes not knowing why it was funny, but knowing it was a punchline. So I would say something like an example would be, uh, Garfield, you know, something like a, there'd be a, a huge sunset or something. And he would say, nice touch. And I didn't know why that was funny. And I don't know that it is funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, if it was in Garfield, it probably wasn't actually funny. Well, this was, uh, this was the period in the late eighties when I would say it was, it was as interesting as it would ever be. Uh, which is not to say that that was a high, it was a high <laughs> watermark for itself, but not the medium in, in, as a whole. Yeah. Well, how about John? Were you a big comic strip fan? I don't remember reading them in the paper a lot. I mean, certainly if uh, some like an adult had a paper and I was bored, I would try to get the comics page, you know, as every kid does. But uh, I definitely read a bunch of the comic collections. And, and I don't know if it was when I was, um, you know, like a kid per se, but maybe more like a, a late teenager or something like that. Uh, you know, that's when I read like collection after collection of like Calvin and Hobbes and uh, Bloom County and, and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, if there was anything, though, that I ever quoted back to people and, you know, I, I would probably be the far side. Like I, I remember like I went through a whole phase where like I, I was, you know, I was just reading all of the far side collections and I definitely and that definitely made an impression on me. And, and, um, and you know, so I would I would uh, try to explain the, the different you know, the different strips to people and uh, probably mangled them and, and made it all sound really stupid. But, um, so, I mean, yeah, I mean, I definitely, and I read, I read a bunch of different comics. Like, I mean, um, like Garfield, I read as a kid as well, even though I'm disparaging it now. So, um, yeah, I mean, it was definitely part of my uh, childhood. Well, yeah. And I, I think that explaining comics was actually really good training for a writer because you would tell it wrong and nobody would laugh, you know, like <laughs> crap. <laughs> I, I, I left out some vital piece of information here and you would actually develop a fairly good sense for what, huh. you know, what information you needed to convey to someone in order for them to follow what was going on. Well, that's actually, that's actually a really interesting idea. Like that could be like a great writing exercise. You should totally tell students that at Alpha if you don't already. I mean, like, you know, as a, as an exercise, have them like look at a comic and then try to explain the comic to you in a way like, you know, turn it into prose because then, then it sort of uh, tries to capture that same effect. That would be interesting uh, to, to see how it works. Uh -huh. uh, but, but David mentioned uh, Garfield and I loved Garfield when I was <laughs> a little kid. And I had this very formative experience for me was I told some other kid who was more of sort of a hipster kid that I liked Garfield. And he's like, oh, Garfield is so mainstream. And you know, the, the guy, the guy who does it, it's, I don't know if this is true, but he said the guy who does it, he's just like lives in a 
he's just rich and he just has all these like servants who do the Garfield, who actually write Garf, write and draw Garfield for him <laughs> and all this stuff. It was so disillusioning. Um, but I don't know. That, I mean, that is true today. I don't know that it was true in, you know, 20 years ago or whenever this story took place, but, uh, or is this a contemporary story? I mean, this, I don't remember how old exactly I was, but I mean, I liked Garfield, so I couldn't have been much older than maybe 12 or 14 at the absolute most. It, it definitely is an empire. Uh, my friend Dave Kellett, who is doing a documentary on, on comic strips, uh, got to go to Indiana to the Garfield compound and interview Jim Davis in his office. And he, he came out of it pretty amazed by the scale of the empire, which doesn't have a huge day-to-day effect on maybe you or I today, but as a licensing phenomenon and as a reprint phenomenon worldwide is like a billion dollar industry, which is so, it's cool that it came from one dude's comic strip. The fact that that's possible, I think is pretty interesting. Yeah. I mean, there was a period when I was a kid when it seems like every car had a Garfield like um, doll sort of stuck in the back window. Right. Uh, right. Mm -hmm. I think there's one of those in LA story that's sort of a, you know, marker Mm -hmm. of the time, but but David, I mean, you said that, you know, at the point where Garfield, I actually remember that strip where Garfield says nice touch to the sunset, that that was sort of the high, <laughs> the high watermark. I don't know of, that that particular strip was the high watermark, but uh, I, I do feel that if you look at the Garfield archives, and which you can do at Garfield.com, uh, you can access a complete archive by date, um, you will find this really clear and distinct narrative arc not in terms of the story of Garfield, but in terms of the type of thing that it's trying to do. And, uh, and I, and I think it starts in this, you know, obviously this, the, the strip started in the late seventies and the idea that like this sassy cat is talking back to his owner, like hold <laughs> on to your pearls, grandma, <laughs> you know, this ain't, you know, this ain't, uh, Someone who wouldn't say ain't, I, I don't know, but it's, <laughs> there was a rudeness to it that I think was, was novel for the time. And so there's a, a lot of those first few formative years of Garfield, you know, they're, they're building this mythos of Garfield, like watch out in this household, the cat is in charge. And, uh, and, and that's kind of interesting. And then by the time you get into the eighties, that's pretty well established. Like we understand the idea of Garfield by this point. And then the funny thing to do became to subvert that paradigm of like, this cat thinks he's in charge, but really normal gets the upper hand or he, or his, you know, hubris is going to catch him in the butt when he tries to kick out, he falls off the table or whatever it is. And, and then, uh, in my opinion, what happened was as, the licensing kicked in and it became this sort of huge phenomenon. Uh, all of a sudden it went from being a comic strip first and foremost to being a brand that had to be consistent and protected. And so the risks that could be taken with it diminished. And so it just became simpler and there's only so many kind of jokes you can hit that follow that same pattern of like, we're going to kill a spider or we're going to sleep in on Monday or the scale hates me. Or whatever, and it all took place in that living room, or maybe out in the yard. You do, you stopped getting these these sort of expansive storylines, and I think that was true until the mid two thousands. And this is when I'm not paying attention to Garfield every day anymore. But I feel like in the in the mid late two thousands, you started to see more 
interesting things happen with it. And I, and I would say it's because you have younger people working for the machine, the Garfield machine who grew up with Garfield and were interested to take it a little bit further. And I think that was around the time of Garfield minus Garfield, which was of course not (laughs) a Jim Davis idea, but it was this increased spotlight on Garfield as a pop culture artifact. And I think maybe, maybe that revitalized, you know, the idea that, oh, we don't have to make this for grandmas. We don't (laughs) have to make this for, for middle-aged people over their coffee. Like there are young people who have affection for Garfield. Like, why not try and make it a little more interesting? I don't (laughs) know if that's the case or not, but that's what it felt like to me. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, John, you had this Garfield without Garfield on the list to talk about. You want to say, just explain for people who don't know what that is? Yeah, I mean, it's actually totally brilliant, but, um, so it's basically just this, somebody took the actual Garfield strips and they, and they just deleted Garfield from the strip. And so it changes from this, you know, comic about a man and his cat and his dog. And suddenly it becomes this like really sad story about a guy who's like crazy and he's like talking to himself and he's just like, he's like, uh, just sort of, uh, basically, uh, just like super depressed because, uh, you know, nothing ever goes right for him. And, and it's like, um, it boggles my mind that that could actually work that by just literally just deleting Garfield from the comic, it makes it so much funnier. Uh, I'll, I'll mention two similar takes on the concept, both of which predate Garfield minus Garfield. Uh, by by a very short period of time. This was all 2004 and 5. 2005 and 6, I would say. Um, one of them is Silent Garfield, which is just removing Garfield's word bubbles. This was actually a predecessor to Garfield minus Garfield. And so you go, it's essentially the same thing, where you go from a conversation between a person and a cat to a person just talking to his cat and responding to his cat and Garfield could be doing things like moving his arms or whatever or or mugging at the camera but never saying anything. And so, you, again, you have to imagine the internal monologue or, in the case of John, the imagined dialogue he's having with the, with this silent cat. And then the other one is the Garfield randomizer, which you can find online if you Google it. And it's, um, as I mentioned before, the Garfield archives are all available from the Garfield website. And they're all in the exact same format. Dailies are three panels of the exact same proportion. And so the randomizer just takes three panels at random and mixes them up. And you can just refresh it. And if you like one of them, you can lock it and then, you know, randomize the the remaining ones. And it is brilliant. And, (laughs) And it does two things. I mean, number one, it by definition provides unpredictable non sequiturs. And which is, which is, which is fine, which is hilarious. And, and there are multiple randomizers. There's the dinosaur comics randomizer. There's the Nancy randomizer. Uh, anything that has a fixed format, you can, you can do. Um, but the other thing about the Garfield randomizer is it shows you what weird concepts are buried in the Garfield archives. And you get a panel of John walking in covered in gravy and he goes, that's the last time I let a monkey in my pants. And it's like, where did this come from? <laughs> and you realize that's in the archive somewhere. And if you go back and look in the archive and do a search and you find that strip, you realize that they just ham-handed it in the strip and they made it, it's too broad or they overplay it. They have Garfield responding by saying like, I can't take you anywhere. And it's like, all right, that's a less good punchline than just imagining the scenario that led to this situation. Yeah. Well, and then I, want to, I was going to say my other favorite comic 
around like when I was a real little kid also involved sort of a talking animal was uh you know peanuts with Snoopy and like by the time that, that comic had been going for so long that by the time I discovered it there was no way I was ever catching up it <laughs> seems like there were like a hundred <laughs> books already mm-hmm. um but I did read a bunch of, I think I read 20 of them or something um I don't know my favorite things were always the ones where Snoopy's sending his manuscripts to publishers and <laughs> getting rejected yeah I think I cut, I sort of photocopied those and cut them all out and just read those ones <laughs> over and over again. Yeah, that would actually be a great collection for writers, uh, actually, just to put them all together and have them all together in, the, in one volume. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think my favorite one was, was uh, Snoopy gets this incredibly cruel, personalized rejection letter that says that they're sick of hearing from him and they never want to hear from him again. And he thinks to himself, probably a form rejection letter. <laughs> Yeah, Peanuts is one of my favorites as well. We had a lot of those little faucet paperbacks uh, from the late 60s, you know, in my house from my older siblings. And so I, I really devoured those over and over and over. Um, and then I read the contemporary ones in the strip, in the paper at the time. But I feel like there was like that 60s, 70s is really when he was firing on all cylinders. And it started to get a little, a little more schmaltzy. Uh, into like the into the into the nineties and so. Mm. Well, I mean, you you mentioned you thought that Garfield sort of um got over commercialized. It seems like Peanuts never never fell into that trap, or or did? Do you think? Oh no, I I I think it did too. I I definitely think. Uh, I mean, Peanuts at its core, and and I mean, things the strip ran for fifty years, so you know, it's not to say that it should never have changed or that. You know, his vision didn't evolve over the years, but um, it really began and I think hit its resonant core as being this, it's kind of existential and it's very melancholy. I mean, the core character is this dude, this kid who can't get a break and everything goes wrong for him and and he and it's, he's not happy-go-lucky about it or glib. He's, it, it depresses him and it's horrible. And in the 50s, especially when when... Uh, it came out, it, this was a pretty novel thing. I mean, just the idea of kids with adult feelings was pretty new and the depth that he took it to uh, emotionally, I think, was 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 really what made it this cultural phenomenon. And uh, I don't know if you've read the biography of, of Schultz. came out a couple of years ago. It's pretty sad, actually, because he was, you know, it gets into his psyche a little bit and how you can see his, the things he was going through personally, you know, evoked in the strip in different ways. I mean, I, I didn't read it, but I, didn't his estate uh, object vociferously to that biography? Uh, I don't think it was terribly well received by some parties. I don't know the details of it, but I can understand how, I mean, and, and I guess we have to take, you know, their word or, or someone's word on, on the veracity of it. But it, there was not, a, it was very interesting and not 100% complimentary, which is, which is, I think maybe, maybe was, was part of the objection. Um, but it, it details how, I forget the person's name, but uh, there's some particular individual who had the idea to come into Charles Schultz and say, what if we merchandise this? And I think one of the earlier uh, efforts in that vein was the book Happiness is a Warm Puppy, which became this gigantic bestseller and led to a whole line of, you know, kind of schmaltzy products. Happiness is a warm blanket and 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 little gifty things and trinkets and and toys and 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 the christmas cards and everything that you see now which of course are still produced they all have everybody smiling or they're sort of grouchy as an affect you know lucy says i'm bossy but it it uh 
you know, the idea that happiness is a warm puppy is, depending on who you ask, either antithetical to the entire point of Peanuts <laughs> or is the answer to the question posed by Peanuts, which is how do we make do? And it's like, well, you make do the best you can, you know, and this is one way. So um, there's definitely a version of Peanuts that is the MetLife blimp and the 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 dancing, you know, costume characters at Knott's Berry Farm. Um, or, and there's a version of Peanuts that is the sort of existential angst of preternaturally mature children. And those two things intersect, but don't always mirror each other. But did the comic, I don't remember Charlie Brown in the comic ever getting a break or overcoming his existential angst, right? Did, I mean, yeah, I mean, there, the, the, his victories were very few and far between, and he had a few, but they were never lasting. <laughs> <laughs> which uh, was the point, which was the point of his character. Yeah. Um, you know, the other, my other real, like real big memory of Peanuts is that, um, my mom had the score from the, um, the, the musical, the, um, You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. Oh, okay. And, uh, I remember they had photographs of the cast and I don't know if you, if you ever saw that, but they decided to make Snoopy just a guy in a white sweater because you can't really sing if you're in a dog costume. <laughs> and I was just so outraged by that. I'm like, that's not Snoopy. It's just a guy in a sweater. <laughs> that's so. funny. Uh, yeah, it's uh, the compromise is inherent in, uh, in, in, the, in in adaptation. I mean, I think in retrospect, it's a good idea, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as a kid, you 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 had you wouldn't brook this outrage. Yeah, yeah. And actually, it, it's kind of interesting how I never really thought about it, but how you know the next uh, comic strip that really captured my imagination was Calvin and Hobbes, mm. which in a way is kind of like Snoopy. You know, it's like Snoopy is the talking animal who has this incredible fantasy life. And it's almost like Snoopy is split into two characters who are Calvin and Hobbes. I don't know. Mm -hmm. What do you guys think about that? Uh, that's an interesting perspective. I've never thought of it that, about it that way. I do think Calvin and Hobbes and Peanuts share a certain DNA of like, let's look at the world through the lens of this child, you know, and, and, and how a child's perspective can cast a different light on contemporary society. And we can either indulge in it like when calvin's watching saturday morning tv he's we're not you know he's he's doing the wrong thing or when he's commenting on you know uh pollution or something like he's speaking for the you know the, the author so he's a pretty multifaceted character um but yeah i definitely think that fantasy idea of their spaceman spiff and the rest of it is is a mirror to the world war one flying ace and uh, and even that goes back to Little Nemo in, in Dreamland and, and Dreams of the Rarebit Fiend and, and things like that from previous comic strips. So it's one of the things that the comic strip medium can do really well, I think, is those sorts of stories where you're not sure what's exactly real and what's not. And you just have what's being portrayed to you on the page and take it, take it for the value that it, that it has. You know, when I was reading Calvin and Hobbes uh, when I was younger, I, I think it was probably the first time I actually experienced uh, comics all in one go like that, you know, so where the strips are actually sequential, you know, because, you know, you read them um, piecemeal in the paper and, and, you know, each one is just taken completely out of the context of the series. And, and you know, may, might be might be a couple of weeks between, you know, you encountering them in the paper. And so um, so it was actually really interesting to see that, like, oh, there's actually this like 
pretty cohesive narrative that runs through the series. And I mean, obviously, there's storylines that wrap up and then new ones start and whatnot. But, you know, there'll be like a good number of strips that are all on the same theme and they're continuing the same storyline until it reaches its conclusion. Um, and it was actually really interesting to, to read them that way. And, and ever since discovering that, like, I never wanted to read them in the paper anymore. And if I couldn't actually read it every week and just stay current, because the experience of reading them all together and actually being able to get the whole story was so much better. So so you didn't do what the publishers ex- wanted you to do, which is buy the paper the following day to see what happened. Right. So the existence of the book collection completely destroyed the market for the daily paper. You're, <laughs> just, you, you, you're just waiting for the trade, as it were. I guess so. I mean, I wasn't uh, probably ever going to buy the paper anyway, so. <laughs> uh. <laughs> so no big loss. Yeah, like what 12-year-old goes and buys a paper, you know, I mean. Well, I did. <laughs> <laughs> It was only a quarter. Uh, because you wanted to find out what was going to happen next in Calvin and Hobbes? or Not that I cared about the story per se, although, you know, I can think of a few instances which I did. But it was, to me, it was worth a quarter to read the comics. See, because I, I generally felt that 85% of the newspaper comics were absolutely god-awful. Mm. I mean, there were the ones I really liked, right? But I would get, I would read those in book form. But then, and there were so many, I mean, I really liked the idea of comics. And as a kid, I would just be fascinated by, of, of the newspaper comics. I would just be fascinated by them. And I always, I would read these ones like Andy Cap or something. And I'd be like, you know, I'm sure when I'm older, this will be funny to me. I'm sure I'm just not getting it now. And then as I got older, I'm like, no, actually, this just kind of sucks. Um, and that was, you know, of course, they're the ones that you always knew sucked, like Family Circus or whatever, right? That are just like <laughs> never funny ever. Oh, I, I definitely had that experience too, where I... I, there were the strips that I enjoyed and the ones that I less than enjoyed, but I always had to read all of them regardless. And in fact, I, Calvin Hobbes was so by so uh, such a wide margin the best that I would even save it for last. And I would like I the way I read the comics would track in the spiral around the page so that Calvin Hobbes, which was in the middle, would still be the last one. <laughs> like I had. Uh, the idea of reading a leaving a comic unread, regardless of whether I actually enjoyed it, it's just I gotta read it. It's there. Hmm. Like, I gotta read it. Mm-hmm. Well, wow, you were just the really you were the you were the ideal reader of uh, of comic strips, I guess. I I was a completist for sure. Now I didn't have to get the paper every day, and I didn't seek out you know, I wasn't like champing at the bit to see what happened in Hagar the Horrible, but <laughs> <laughs> I. I definitely read them all. I be you know, so I, I became familiar with all of them. Uh, going to another city, like visiting a cousin or something who lived in a different city, and seeing they had a different paper with different comics I'd never seen before, like that was a revelation. Like, what else is out there? What am I missing? <laughs> now, were, were you at that time? Were you seeing? Were, were you imagining ever doing comics yourself, or were you just purely a reader at that point? Uh, I. I, I entertained the idea. Like I tried drawing some comic strips just for fun. And uh, right around that like middle school age, like maybe 14, 15, uh, I, no, I guess it's high school. So like, yeah, 12, 13, 14, I and a friend would do a kind of comic strip that um, we would, you know, doodle in class. And I think we must have got a hundred page long episodes of it like we would take a piece of you know blank copy paper folded in eighths and so it would be 16 uh panels and then you know just trace it with a ruler 
the panel borders. And then there it is. You got 16 panels to do what you want with. And then we had some characters and then we had a, had a story, you know, we just had, had fun with it. And so I, I, we must've made a hundred of those. Um, I'm not going to say that they were ever funny or ever <laughs> really interesting at all, to be honest, but the format, like the vernacular, the pacing of it, as I recall now, had been internalized from that mm. exposure. Yeah, well, I mean, because I, I did a little bit, of, I sort of messed around with comic strips a little bit. I mean, I was always more into the fiction, but I was always really, really fascinated by the process of how they were made. And there was such scant information available at that time. And every once in a while, there would be something like the prehistory of the Far Side or um, Boom County Babylon, or some even some of the Bill Watterson stuff where they would talk a little bit about their process and particularly Bill Watterson and uh, Berkeley Brevet, who did the um, Boom County, would talk about their struggles with the cartoon syndicates. Mm. And I'm just wondering, as, an, as someone who is a little bit more serious about being an aspiring comic artist, did, did, did that make any impression on you, the, the business versus art aspect of it? I had heard of that. Like, uh, it was not until I was a little older that I really kind of grokked what that was. But I did understand the basic idea that there was a syndicate that controlled the distribution of comics and that to get a comic in the paper, you had to submit it to a syndicate like that. I understood that process uh, academically. Um, I was not critical of it in a way that I, I had the knowledge to be later. It's kind of funny to me that it's called a syndicate, given that that makes it sound like an evil organization, and, and <laughs> that uh, that idea was it was itself probably implanted in my head from comics of some sort or another, probably uh, <laughs> sort of superhero comics more so, but than the comic shows. But still, it's kind of funny that it's syndicate. Like, who who would call their their company a syndicate or you know whatever? <laughs> Actually, Bloom County. Uh, I mean, they picked he he later resurrected it as Outland, but right. the actual Bloom County has this just heartbreaking. A heartbreaking finale where the syndicates essentially and corporate interests destroy ah. the whole, you know, the whole land of Boom County. Right. Okay. Yeah. I was going to say, I wondered if, um, I was wondering, I, could, cause I couldn't remember, but I, I was wondering if uh, the reason Bloom County ended was because of that. And then, because I remembered uh, that it came back as Outland later. And I mean, because it, it started off as it was like a different strip, but then eventually he just, you know, sort of ported everybody over more or less. Uh, and, and it just became the same strip again. Yeah, the way I remember it anyway is that he uh, he wanted to wrap up Bloom County and then, I don't know, it was, I think it was like a like a Sherlock Holmes kind of thing where he tried to kill it off and then, mm -hmm. you know, people demanded he bring it back or, at any rate, for a while it was only, I think it was only Sundays, um, you know, at, at the point that it became Outland, it was only Sundays. Uh, I don't know, David, do you, did you follow this at all? Yeah, I mean, uh, Outland, when it came back, was a Sunday-only strip. I, I, I remember that. I, uh, when I was a kid and really reading comics, my paper did not carry Bloom County. So I didn't, um, I didn't ever read it. And really, although I know of it, I haven't really read much of it. Okay. Oh, it's, you should, you should read. I mean, it's, it's great. I mean, it's, it was, it's by far the most political of any of the comics strips that I read. And that, that really made a big impression on me. I think I mean obviously I I I know of it and uh and, and of its reputation and I went and I enjoyed Outland as far as that goes I think it was not as good, um yeah well I I think Outland was not as good as Bloom County and the Sunday strips in Bloom County were by far my least favorite so I you know <laughs> they were always just a little sort too sort of like random and whimsical for me and so uh, yeah I wouldn't judge the strip 
on the basis of Outland, which I, I never found particularly strong. Sure. And, and I've, I've gone back and I've read some of the Bloom County collections. I remember the first time I, um, I was at the library and they had a copy and I'm like, ah, you know what, this is, I, I should probably know of this more than I do just because mm. it's such a seminal piece of, of comics history. Uh, and I opened it and it was a joke about like Oliver North or something. And I'm like, yeah, ah, all right, is this going to be, is, are we going to be, are we on a nostalgia trip if we're going to read this? <laughs> um, and I did read a bunch of it and I can see how it would be pretty amazing if, if you're in the middle of that kind of political scenario. And, and there were a lot of strips that were great just on, on their merits, of course. But I, I do feel like. I don't know. And this is me saying it having read it as an adult and not as an impressionable kid. So take that with a grain of salt. I, I, I got the impression that it was something that spawned so many imitators that it was hard after the fact to appreciate its novelty. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it is hard. It's such a product of its time that it probably is hard to go back and, and read it. You know, it's such, it's so much about the eighties, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, so, you know, one thing I was sort of wondering was, uh, you know, in terms of uh, the battle of the cartoonists versus the syndicate and all that kind of stuff. Um, so, like, I mean, like I, like I was saying, I didn't really follow uh, all the all of the details of it. But I mean, like, so while they may have been um, sort of not getting exactly what they wanted or maybe the syndicate was dicks to them in some way or another. I mean, but these these top five that we all have on our list here or that we have on our list here, like Calvin and Hobbes, Bloom County, Farside, Garfield and Peanuts, like the creators of those all got filthy, filthy rich. Right. I mean, and I mean, because I mean, they basically never done anything else. I mean, but they did their comics and then they've made their entire living off that. And uh, several of them have just sort of disappeared from the face of the earth after after, uh, you know, ending their strip. And theoretically, I guess I, I, I mean, I've been assuming that they made so much money that they didn't need to do anything else. Um, so, I mean, is that right? Um, or, I, I mean... I think so. I mean, I don't... I'm not privy to the numbers, but Calvin and Hobbes has now been gone for longer than it was around. Mm -hmm. And it's... I mean, there was that complete collection that came out a few years ago. Um, but other than that, it's like those Andrews McMeal uh, collections of treasuries... They've just been in print for decades, mm -hmm. and I don't know. I haven't cracked one open, but if you next time you're at a you're at a bookstore, you know, see what printing they're on, because um, it's probably, uh, you know, it's probably my mom still gives Calvin Hobb book collections to her grandkids as gifts, even though they were in some cases born after the strip stopped, because it's just it just had that hold on people. So maybe that's maybe that's enough. Um, as far as peanuts, you had merchandising, Garfield merchandising and licensing, like those are the cash cows. Uh, Calvin Hobbes is the exception in that it did not have that and, and very, very specifically did not have that. Um, and the only Calvin Hobbes merchandise is the books. And mm -hmm. so, you know, when I first started doing conventions, just kind of as a tangent, when I had one book to sell, I would sell X number of books. And then when I had five books to sell, I would still sell the same number of books, just each one one-fifth as much or whatever. Mm. And uh, so I wonder if the market for Calvin and Hobbes merchandise is all concentrated in those books. Whereas if there, was, if there were a million plushes and everything, it would be, you know, more dilute. Uh, I don't know. It's hard to say. I mean, I can just remember Bill Watterson telling stories about, you know, uh, I don't know, business people just screaming at him on the phone saying, sign the contract. There's millions of dollars at stake here. And, and he's just like, no, I don't want Calvin and Hobbes under, you know, underwear and 
bed sheets and stickers and all this crap, you know? Yeah, which is, you know, it, it's his decision, of course. And as someone who now is my living is making merchandise, <laughs> it's it's a really, it's an admirable point of view, you know, but it's also, you know, it's a very privileged perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's cool that he didn't want Calvin and Hobbes plushes. And it's almost sacrilege to say so, but what about those kids who really wanted Calvin and Hobbes plushes? Like, their lives are made less by the fact that he didn't want to compromise his sense of values. So, you know, I don't think it's, I think it's obviously, it comes down to his decision and whatever he wanted to do. But I don't think there's something wrong, necessarily, with making things that people, you've made comics that people enjoy. You can also make objects that people enjoy. It's fine, you know? the. The things that people enjoy are the things that people enjoy. It seems to me that it, it, it matters what the nature of the strip itself is. Like, I would have no problem with Bloom County merchandise because the strip itself is kind of worldly and cynical and, you know, even makes, I mean, the build, it's funny because the build a cat character was introduced as a cynical, within this context of the strip, as a cynical marketing ploy to create mm-hmm. a Garfield type character to make this, you know, to, to merchandise. And, um, and the joke is supposed to be that Bill is such a gross, you know, disgusting cat that no one would ever want to see him on a t-shirt, which is just, you know, is, is funny because then he became the most popular t-shirt character ever, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's different for Calvin and Hobbes where it's a strip about childhood innocence. And I think that, you know, merchandising that too heavily does eat away at the core of, of what that particular strip is about. Mm. Yeah, I mean, we could be having the same conversation about Calvin and Hobbes that we did about Peanuts. 10 minutes ago um, about whether the merchandise, some hypothetical set of merchandise accurately reflects the content of the, of the strip. And you could dovetail that into a conversation about whether the, you know, the ethics of the, of the story of the narrative and the characters at what value they have, you know, is it, is, is their value primary and the value of enjoying a piece of merchandise, a, a, a lesser good. Um, but I feel like if he, I don't know, it's, it's, it sounds so dumb to say it, but I will say it. If Bill Watterson had said, had never, if he had kept all of his qualms to himself and, uh, and he had made Hobbes plushies, I don't think we would be sitting here saying, you know what, Watterson's a sellout. And if if anything, he may have put Calvin and Hobbes on a pedestal in a way that nobody is putting Garfield on a pedestal. Or or let's look at the far side. There's a ton of far side merchandise, right? From calendars to mugs to mm. t-shirts to whatever. Nobody's like, Gary Larson, he's a sellout. And I think you're mm. right. The nature of the strip is different. But um, I think part of the reason we see Calvin and Hobbes in this sort of inhaloed light is because Watterson himself told us it was above mm. these worldly concerns, and we believed him. Uh, you know, speaking of Calvin and Hobbes merchandise, though, like, so what? I mean, what's the deal with all those little Calvin decals, like of Calvin like pissing on things and whatever? Those are just unauthorized or something. <laughs> yeah. I mean, oh yeah. Yeah. yeah like, absolutely. I yeah. mean, well, how, just... I mean, like, how do people get away with keep continuing to sell them? I mean, because they're like they're everywhere. Well, I mean, in order to stop that, you have to the 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 syndicate would have to go. And get an injunction against the manufacturer of it. And I don't mm-hmm. know if they want to spend that. Clearly, they don't want to spend that much money in time. Mm-hmm. 
Um, all right. Well, we've mentioned the far side, but we didn't actually talk about the strip at all. And I do want to talk about it. If people haven't read it, I do strongly recommend checking out this book I mentioned, The Far Hist- uh, the Prehistory of the Far Side, where Gary Larson talks about the thought process behind some of the strip. There are some really hilarious uh, stories in there. Um, like, for example, there are a lot of uh, far side strips that involve sort of uh, Neanderthals and dinosaurs existing side by side. And some of them are really hilarious, but it's funny because Gary Larson says, you know, I feel like every time I do this, that there should be some uh, comic book artist confessional where you go and you say, uh, forgive me, father, I've sinned. I've drawn human beings and dinosaurs together. You know? <laughs> yeah, the first, the first side is great. Yeah, it's one of those, one of those seminal uh, strips that had a really unique, you know, mind behind it. and. Uh, yeah, you know, there's just enough of it that we have to trust, you know, both him and Watterson that they they did what they could with it, and uh, and the, and what we have of it is is great. That book, The Prehistory of the Far Side, is pretty amazing. Like you said, one of those rare or pseudo rare, rare for the time for sure, uh, glimpses into the the behind the scenes of you know joke construction or uh, editorial influence or whatever. Well, it's funny, too, because he talks about uh, really negative reactions to some of his jokes. Like, uh, he has one where it's a bunch of alligators, and it looks like they're bobbing for apples. And the the caption is, uh, bobbing for poodles. And he he talks about all the hate mail he got for that. And he's (laughs) like, it's, thank God I didn't go with my original caption, which was bobbing for babies. Uh, (laughs) And and then there's this this one, there's cats playing, or these dogs playing tetherball with a cat, sort of instead of the tetherball. And um, and he said something I thought was really interesting. He is he said I thought I think that people react really negatively to comics in a way that they don't. To he's like this is no worse really than Tom and Jerry, right? Where the animals are just getting clobbered all the time. But he says the difference is in a cartoon where you know it's it's more transitory, where you see the animal get clobbered, but then a second later it's up running around again and everything's fine. Whereas this strip, it's it's sort of frozen in time forever, and you know you put the book away, you know that those that cat is still hanging there, you know. <laughs> In perpetuity. Yeah, that's re- that's a really interesting way to put it. Uh, you know, I mean, the idea of merchandising, though, just uh, also makes me, uh, and, and in regard to the far side, uh, makes me think that, like, one of the reasons that I really became, like, a follower of the far side was because they were available as a calendar. You know, like, not and not just, like, the, the monthly calendar, but, you know, those day-to-day calendars where you tear off a sheet every day, um, and every sheet has a different far side on it. Like, that's a brilliant idea for a strip like the far side, uh, especially because you can, not only do you see it, you see a new one every day, but then you also, you can take that one that you really like and you can pin it up on your board, cork board or whatever, put it on your refrigerator. Um, so, I mean, I think that's a, and, or you can just give it to somebody. It's like, it's a way that really helps spread the word about the, the comic and, and, you know, expose people to it who wouldn't encounter it otherwise. Well, it, it's, it's funny because the far side has this really sort of strange, sick sense of humor, um, but it's so popular. And the same thing with, with Calvin and Hobbes, you might expect it to, you know, like you read, like I read it anyway, and I say, oh, Calvin is me. You know, I, I identify with this so much. But then everybody loves it. And I think the success of those two things maybe indicates that, like, quote unquote, normal people aren't what they project themselves to be in a way that so many people connect with these these sort of outsider, <laughs> sick humor sorts of things. I, I think that's true. I think there probably are some, you know, anonymous group of people that I'll never interact much with that have very very bland and un- uninteresting tastes but there are definitely plenty of people you know it's a big world of pe- of people that have you know 
these more like slightly more uh cutting uh or or slightly darker perspectives on the world and those those people there's a lot of them and usually they are you know employed and they have money to spend on things <laughs> so <laughs> um so you know most of the comics that we were talking about and most of the comics that you would find in any comic book page in in, in the paper uh they're humorous right uh, but there has always been like one or two in every any group of comics in a paper that were like serious for some reason, and I've never understood those. Like as a kid, like reading them, like I never read them, or I would try and I'm like, what? The, I don't understand. What's where's the rest of the story? Because it's like you're coming in like in the middle of a story, and I assume if I actually was reading it every week, that maybe I would get into it or something. But uh, so on the one hand, I, I never understood those. On the other hand, um, you know, Flash Gordon is one of those, right? And at some point um, in my career, I, I got hired to do some quizzes about Flash Gordon. And so I, I had never really read Flash Gordon or I mean, not I, ne- I, I literally never had read Flash Gordon, but I took the job because it was a job. And um, and so I got up a couple of these collections and I was reading them. And so, like, you know, obviously it is in sequential order and you can make a story out of it. But, oh, my God, Flash Gordon is terrible. I can't believe it. <laughs> that ran in the paper for so long. And it's been such a huge property got adapted so many different times and this uh, this gig i got was when the sci-fi channel was adapting it yet again to a new tv series um and so they wanted some quizzes on sort of the history of flash gordon and so i i sort of suffered through uh several of the different volumes and did a bunch of googling to find out all this different trivia but but anyway i mean when, what do you guys think of like maybe flash gordon or, or like those serious strips like did you ever read any of them or did you just skip them like i did I made for a while. I made a serious effort to collect Prince Valiant. I don't know why. Uh, I think I was just curious to see if you actually read read it week by week. Did it actually make sense? And <laughs> it kind of did, but I after I don't know after I collected six or seven of them or something, and it was just not worth the effort. And it was always just sort of like they might as well might, might as well have just printed a vacuum cleaner ad or something in that space. For, <laughs> <laughs> you know. I also I, I those were my exceptions to the my read everyone rule like i would i was okay if i skipped the mary worth and, and apartment 3g <laughs> um although i did sometimes read them just to see if i could parse them and i rarely could i always figured like you said earlier i would i'll get it when i'm older and i never cared to <laughs> um prince valiant is an interesting example because it's, it's lovely to look at um but yeah i did the same thing where i would read it every week and then realize I I wasn't getting it. So maybe I'm just missing a piece of the story. So I made an effort to read it week to week to week. And I realized it just was not interesting. And it's weird because it's a summary. It's like everything is told in, in description. And so it's like reading a cliff's notes of a story, like paragraph by paragraph every week. And it's was not engaging in any, in any way at all. Um, but I don't know if you guys know Josh Frulinger. He does a, a, a site called The Comics Curmudgeon. And he reads the comics and comments on them. And over the years, he's got, he's, he's developed a real soft spot for Mary Worth and for Mark Trail and just has delved into these absurd depths of, uh, and Gil Thorpe, which is like a high school sports themed, <laughs> Gil Thorpe or Tharp, I don't even know. Um, high school sports themed strip and the ones where they just have no value as far as I'm concerned. He's, he's, he's dug into them in, in a way that's both admirable and, and a little terrifying. 
Um, and the one that I realized after like reading and then had this moment of clarity on was the, the Spider-Man, the, the newspaper version of Spider-Man, which is horrible. And <laughs> there is a rumor that Stan Lee writes it every morning with a typewriter by his pool. Um, I don't know if that is true, but I love the image of him in a bathrobe clacking out the latest adventures of, of newspaper version Peter Parker, who is so far removed from any world that anyone knows is just <laughs> it's just uh, absurd. Because it's a three-panel strip, and the first panel is devoted to the recap of the prior story, of the story so far. And the third panel is devoted to, like, what's happening, coming up soon. And so the middle panel is the only panel that advances the story. And so you can have a story, and I use story in a very loose, you know, way, but a narrative that would occupy an issue of a comic book, a 22-page issue of a comic book, will last for six months in, in the newspaper. And it's just the, it's like, it's kind of like reading a novel, like a sentence at a time. Mm-hmm. And it, and it's just not <laughs> worth the effort. It's so, <laughs> it's such a strange artifact of like the adventure strip, you know, world, but it's not even, it's from the, like the eighties. It's like not, it's like after the heyday of the big adventure strips, it's just a weird sort of Marvel licensing artifact that still hangs on by dint of inertia as far as i'm concerned yeah well i mean i saw burke brethard uh, the creator of boom county on a panel one time and he was talking about how there used to be millions of young people reading boom county in the newspaper and that's not the case anymore and and they the the moderator asked him well what what can you do to what can we do to bring them back and he says that'll never happen (laughs) that'll never happen in a million years you know the newspaper comics are are done and you know and they sort of you know, self-immolated by just uh, running the same, you know, these these strips that, that feel like they're out of the 50s. Maybe they are out of the 50s for decade after decade after decade to the point where no teenager could possibly care what what some of these characters are up to. Yeah, it seems bizarre to me that I could pick up the paper and, and I'll still find almost all of the same comics that were there when I was a kid. Like, I mean, I haven't read the comic page in a newspaper and probably at least 15 years, it probably more than that. Uh, but it's just like, like, is Beetle Bailey still there? And like all the, all, like, you know, Hagar the Horrible, like all the, all the, all the really terrible ones that have been around forever. Like, I, I, I can imagine that they're all still there. And if I read one, it'll be exactly like it was when I read it <laughs> all those years ago. Like literally nothing changes at all, you know? And it's yeah. just like, and I mean, I think that's part of why they stick around, uh, because of the sort of lowest common and dominant lowest common denominator stuff but yeah it's just kind of it's bizarre to think that they're still there a lot of those are run by legacy creators is the euphemistic term where it's the it's often the son or the grandson or the rarely the daughter but often the a a child or an heir of the original creator or in the case of um uh dennis the menace for example at one point hank ketchum the creator hired two uh, editorial cartoonist to take over the dailies and the Sundays and then over as his health failed like they just took it over so now it's these other guys that do it uh, uh, BC is done by Johnny Hart's grandson um, uh, even Ziggy you know it's oh, it's, Ziggy, it's, yeah. Tom, it's Tom Wilson's son Tom 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 too it's it's Bill Keen's um, I can't I think it's Bill Keen's son who does it it's like uh yeah it is it's Jeff Keen and Jeff Keen is Jeffy in the Family Circus so the, he is drawing <laughs> the adventures of himself at f- age five, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> which is pretty pretty strange. 
I hope he's managed to keep it consistently unfunny. <laughs> Don't worry. Don't you worry. <laughs> I got good news for you, my friend. <laughs> All right, cool. So we should start wrapping this up. Uh, we were planning to talk about webcomics as well, but obviously, like, we just, we don't have time. So hopefully we can do that There's in a, a different... There's a lot meat on this bone. <laughs> because, yeah, <laughs> yeah, we have, like, a list of, like, 25 webcomics. So uh, maybe we'll have to save that for another uh, another time. Um, but uh, David, before I let you go, do you want to just talk about some of the projects you're up to, this card game and uh, your comic and stuff like that? Sure. Well, the card game has been occupying most of my time for the last uh, eight months or so. It's called Machina Death, the Game of Creative Assassination. It is a storytelling card game uh, that uh, casts the players as assassins trying to kill people by knowing how they will die and trying to use it as a puzzle to figure out how to make it happen. That uh, game is going to be out in next month, hopefully, November. Uh, be for sale on uh, our website, uh, machinadeath.net, and uh, wider thereafter. So that's going to be, I, I'm real excited about that. It's been a real, real long process to get it to this point. And then my comic strip, of course, Wondermark, is at wondermark.com. And it is a couple times a week I try and tell a joke. And sometimes, sometimes it works. Well, and Wondermark is kind of a unique sort of uh, comic. You want to just tell people what it is, like describe it to sort of pique their interest? Sure. Well, it's a comic strip that's made using illustrations from old books. So 19th century magazines, catalogs, periodicals, storybooks. I take the illustrations and engravings and I kind of use them as source materials, to as source images to, to build comics out of them. So it's kind of a collage technique that ends up with something that looks, I think, pretty cool. It's all thanks to people who are dead now. So I am <laughs> standing on the shoulders of corpses. <laughs> <laughs> all right, cool. Do you have any other any upcoming projects or anything you're uh, going to do in the future? Well, presumably, there will be something. Um, <laughs> it's hard to know exactly what. But uh, one of the recent things that we did was uh, the Machine of Death, uh, uh, latest volume of short stories called This Is How You Die. came out this summer and has been very well received. Uh, so that's a cool thing to read if you like uh, stories. There's some comics in that, too, actually. If, if you're part of the liberal culture of death. I'm part <laughs> of the liberal culture of death that's destroying America. Uh, that's our pull quote from Glenn Beck, which is nice. <laughs> and um, I guess when the game is out and in people's hands, we'll see if they like it. And if they like it, maybe we'll do more things like that. And if they don't, we'll brush the whole thing quietly under a rug <laughs> and uh, move on to something wildly different. So time will tell. All right, great. So I think we're going to wrap things up there. So, David, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. And thanks again to Ali Brosh for being our guest today. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including Kipiru in the U.S. and Bobby Dude in the U.K. Kipiru writes, I recently discovered this podcast, and I feel like Burgess Meredith's Twilight Zone character on the steps of the library. What a wealth of ideas to explore. I have cleared my media plate and am zealously protecting my glasses. So thank you, Kipiru, for that great review. Special thanks as well to David Loughran for becoming a subscriber number 59. To see a list of all our subscribers, visit our website at geeksguyshow.com and click on subscribe. Also, transcripts of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy are now available from Amazon.com. They're sold in bundles of three episodes and include the text of both the interview and the panel. Three ebooks are currently available covering episodes 76 through 84, and more will be coming soon. So just go to Amazon.com and search for Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Alright, so that was our show. 
Thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your hosts, visit johnjosephadams.com or davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by Slipgate 9 Entertainment. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.